Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 247. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Now, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Did you hear that little intro? Yes, it has been changed to District of Wonders. This is the week. This is it. It all happens here. The kickoff of Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp and Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa, as well as the other two, come under the banner of District of Wonders. How cool is that? What a big week. It is massive in kind of my little world. So, yes, that's what's happening. I'll give you a little heads up what else is coming in today's show. We have an interview with the hosts of Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp, Dave Robinson and Inspector Jack Calvary. <laughs> then we have a little promo for Amy, as you remember, or as I've told you before. She is doing her little video live lecture. We've got a promo by Amy on all the Hunger Games and science fiction tradition. Then we have Main Fiction, and it is by Ian MacDonald, and the story is Digging. Then right at the end, we have First Chapters, Mind Secrets by Chris Reynolds. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it.
Just before we kick off with the day's show, I just want to take a little couple of seconds out there of this show to just say, you know, a big get well soon to Neil Clark from Clark's World. Neil is the kind of the founder there and, you know, sorted all it out. Neil's just suffered a heart attack. And, you know, I see it on Facebook there. You know, there's pictures of Neil in hospital with tubes in his nose and all sorts like that. So, Neil, listen. Get yourself sorted out, you know, from me and from all the listeners at Starship's Over. You know, we just want you to get better and get back on with Clark's World. You know, it's just great to have Clark's World out there as well. And blooming hell, you know, what a shock it was just to see, you know, again, see the lad, Neil, see you sitting there, lying there in your bed. would like to see all these kind of tubes coming out of you. Horrible, to be quite honest, but please, thoughts go over to the pond there. Get yourself well and, you know get back to doing Clark's World. So yes, this is the week, a big week, and young lad, he has my birthday as well on Thursday. <laughs> All exciting. <laughs> no, but it is, I mean, this is the kind of the week where crime, you know, on the 16th, we launched Crime City Central. The day after, we launched Protecting Project Pulp. Now, Starship Sofa's coming out with the kind of new, you know, under the kind of wing, the banner, the, the hub page, the central, you know, of District of Wonders, and that also takes in Larry's Tales to Terrify as well. <laughs> How exciting is that? So, what I thought I would do is I would get Jack on Auntie and just have a little kind of free Roman chat. So, getting around the table here, I've now, you know, proud as anything to kind of have these two guys on this show today because this is, you know, it's, and it's been in the workings for ages, you know what I mean? I've kind of been planning this for ages and I've got there Dave Robertson and Jack Calvary, who is, you know, Jack's doing the Crime City Central and Dave's going to, you know, jump in with protecting Project Polk. Gentlemen, nice to have you on board the sofa. It's a pleasure to be here, Tony. Thanks, man. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tony. Now, again, this straight goes back to, you know, and I've been planning this, like, for quite a while, even before it even took off, you know, doing these kind of extra shows, you know, and especially yours, Jack, the, the kind of, that one was just, it's been in the kind of workings for ages, you know what I mean? And, and I tell you when I kind of, I narrowed it down and I thought, yeah, no, that's it, Jack, is when you did that narration of Paul Cornell's story, one of our bastards is missing. In that, op- in that opening line, do you know what I mean? When you kind of delivered that, the title, it just kind of thought, yep, that's Jack. That, it's got to be, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and you could, it's got to be the kind of, that's the voice that'll do a sleazy crime show. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. That really, that really makes me feel very good. I really feel happy about myself now. Yeah, you're going to go on to big things now, now Jack. Wait, again, David, it's the same with you, you know, because... And it was the same with Larry. Do you know what I mean? The voice, the voices and the guys came first before anything else. And if it, it wasn't going to be like that, then it, it wouldn't have probably kicked off. Do you know what I mean? And I'm glad, Dave, you kind of, because you have got this and you've been real. And it's like, I love it because you're just camping it right. as what we see over in the UK, camping it right up, just throwing yourself right into it. And, you know, being this kind of, almost all now, this kind of adventurer, for want of a oh, better yeah. description. 
Well, and, and that's, and you know, good fiction will do that. You know, if I've got an acting background, I, I got a degree in theater. So when, when good fiction with good characters and good narration is, is thrown in my lap, you know, all of those instincts just kick in and, and it's like, oh my God, I want to be this person. I, I got to submerge, immerse myself into this rich prose and this great dialogue and, and just, you, you can't help, you know, surrender to that that wonderful story and i'm just i'm just glad that my vocals you know tend to to carry that and convey that to the listeners because you know that's 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 what our job is well and this is the kind of thing dave as well with the pulp one you know you're saying it's kind of adventure and throwing yourself in through it but what i'm discovering as well is some of them stories weren't the best ones in the world you know yet they were still kind of churning them out and publishing them and some of them that's you know they were kind of close to hitting the mark to being downright I guess disgusting and you know negative and degrading and we've we've had to take these on board these kind of issues as well what what do you think now you know like a few months kind of down the line are you kind of ready for maybe getting a few emails thinking saying you know things like these stories are just rather you know humiliating yeah. and 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 bad well, and, and you're, we're dealing with, I mean, and we had these discussions as we were talking about how we were going to approach this. The, as you point out, these are, these are dated stories. These are historical stories drawn from, a, a, from an era where our, our, you know, American culture, certainly, but I think global culture was really discovering the, the world around us and, and the value of, of everyone. I mean, we just come out of uh, or, or we're just getting ready, just coming out of World War I, uh, uh, there was a global awareness going on, and people were really trying to figure out where they fit in that. And, yeah, several of the stories, I mean, that era was not exactly conducive to an open-minded, embracing nature of, of everyone. So, as historical pieces, looking back at them now from our more enlightened standpoint... There are some offensive elements. There are elements that don't that, that we don't agree with us as the creators of the show and certainly our listeners. But there's also that spirit of, like you say, adventure. That spirit of of digging into the unknown uh, uh, and risking everything in that exploration whether whether it's a a, a sci-fi romp to the moon or or spies or you know digging into the you know hp lovecraft was a huge pulp uh, uh, sub, uh, uh submitter author you know everyone was exploring those elements so the i think honestly the foundations of our current enlightenment can be found in those prejudices and bigotries of that era so while the stories are, yeah, there's there's some elements in there that we need to be very careful about. I, I think it's important that we put them out there as the first step towards this current spirit of of openness and embracing. Does that make sense at all? Oh yes, I mean it's the same with like it's exactly the same, really. You know, with Jack because Jack's now having to deal with you know we're doing the, the crime stories and and some of the sure. stories that's been sent in. They're the unpleasant tales. Do you know what I mean? You're dealing with some horrific kind of crimes, you know, against all kind of age groups and everything like that. And, you know, I've kind of thrown this at Jack. Jack, what? And I've never really kind of taught at Jack as well, because Jack, you know, some of your stories are going to be very close to the mark. Well, what I, I'm going to do is at the beginning of the show, if there's something that I think is uh, adult in nature, I will mention it. 
I'll give you a warning. So um, you, you'll get it during the course of the introduction. I'll uh, I'll steer people away if I think that perhaps it's uh, it's not for, for not for uh, as I as I put it in in one of the the shows that I'm, I've been listening to. Um, if you if you don't if you're not old enough to drive a motor vehicle, you probably shouldn't be listening to this show. So I suggest tune in again next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you say, Jack, it's funny because, you know, over here, and I'm like, you say, it's exactly the same with Dave and, you know, the American kind of TV culture. A lot of our kind of British crime, you know, is close to the mark, you know what I mean? But the first kind of, I always remember the first story, kind of, I've been collecting stories in the, in the kind of backgrounds for a while there now. And then the first story I listened to, you know, I was thinking, oh, but then I just have to think about, we played it, you know, we took a chance with Larry's story on Starship Sova, Little Girl Down the Way, which was just, you know what I mean, probably one of the kind of baddest, nastiest things, but, you know, it, it, it was a story to be told, and I'm glad I kind of ran it as well, you know, so I think that's the same with both these shows. There's going to be some elements, you know, especially, I think, on Dave's, the kind of politically correct elements, you know what I mean, Dave? You're going to have to deal with a boatload there sometimes, are you? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, there's there was there was racial bigotry. There was certainly gender gender bigotry that was that was rampant back then, and there there was a certain arrogance to. I mean, these pulp authors were, as as you pointed out, grinding this stuff out. Uh, uh, the the author that we that we lead off with with protecting Project Pulp is the guy cranked out over two hundred novels and stories during the course of his career. Um, and that doesn't happen unless there's an audience out there that you're that that is consuming these these wonderful tales, and consequently, when you play to that audience, you're playing to the to the prejudices, to the desires, to the to the mindset of that audience. So yeah, we're going to have to deal with with some of those those prejudices and some of those unpleasantries in there. But I hope in the in the process of of serving as host that I can sort of showcase and signpost those elements. And, and point them out in the context of, of not only what they were then, but how far we've come since then and the, the stepping stone that these stories provided to get us there. So, Dave, who was then the, the audience for these writers? Say that one more time. Who, who were the, the audience for these writers? You know what I mean? In- oh, yeah. These, this, was, this was working class. These were people, I mean, these... Pulp fiction is is really the inheritor of the traditions of like the penny dreadfuls and the dime store no, uh, the dime novels that were out there. So these were these were incredibly inexpensive uh, magazines that were being cranked out on on the cheap paper that could be literally shipped out in trains and distributed across the country. Um, and so you're dealing with uh, a very working class mindset. You're dealing with the uh, uh, people that were working hard, uh, dealing. I mean, we were, were, were coming out of the the, the Great Depression, uh, America's Great Depression at that time, uh, and people needed an escape. They needed a valve, a vent, something to give them hope and take them out into a world that wasn't, you know, maybe a soul crushing or soul grinding uh, experience. We were going through a lot of challenges back then, and so. The authors were writing 
not, this this wasn't uh, highbrow fiction. Uh, this was this was very much targeted towards a working class mentality who wanted to to see uh, spies. Uh, uh, Fighting evil superheroes, fighting evil. I mean, comic books have their heritage here. All of those heroic ideals that are sustained and carried forward in the various genres that exploded from the pulp uh, phenomenon uh, have their have their foundation right here. So, so yeah, we're we're, we're not dealing with. Um, a highly educated or an enlightened audience. Uh, we're dealing with the, you know, that salt of the earth and they see as far as what's right in front of them and dealing with those issues. Jack, what's your take on the, the crime one? Where, where can you see it going? Are we good? Cause when I first kind of came to Jack, you know, the idea was just to, to have, you know, a story, a kind of a, one story, you know, an in and out and the story in the middle. Do you think we will? Or do you think you, cause you know, it's, it's kind of your babies, you run with them kind of thing. Do you think you, you'd like to bring in certain like Starship Sober fact articles and maybe interviews yes. down the line and things like that? Yes, yes, I like the, I like the model of Starship Sofa. Uh, I think bringing in fact articles about crime and about detection would be, would be a good thing, and also uh, about the media. I mean, Starship Sophie has um, reviews of films and things like that, and uh, and there's just loads of crime on the television. Some of it's crime fiction as well. So um, uh, the, the, there's a whole you know there's an enormous world out there to draw on to help um, colour the fiction and give it a context you know what's funny with the, the crime side for me because i'm like me bread and butter as the, the kind of the genre the science fiction genre it's been difficult in a way for me to to find the writers out there now you can you get you get a footing and i'm kind of aware and we've got share who's on there who's kind of now the the editor the assistant editor there who's going in getting these stories but on the science fiction side, there's, there's kind of nice places, you know, where you can kind of go and find the author, find the story and think, right, I'll, I'll try for that story. The, the crime one, it might be all there. Do you know what I mean? It's just that I'm not kind of looking no more and I haven't looked for a while. But it was, it's a kind of, although it's so big, uh, it was just difficult to kind of break into. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I've tried to kind of sneak in the back door of all of them. You know what I mean? We're, we're now doing, like say, with Dave the Pulp there. We've done the horror as well. Jack, was crime... Has crime been with you before, or is this all kind of a new experience as well for you? Well, I'm, I'm not a great crime reader, but I'm quite a, a crime watcher. Of, uh, you know, I'm a fan of, uh, over here in the UK, we have uh, things like Lewis and Frost and uh, Midsummer Murders. So it's, I suppose it's very middle-of-the-road kind of stuff. I, mean, I like the, um, so the Wire in the Blood that's that sort of uh, thing. And we, we now have uh, Inspector Jack Calvary, mind you, to that list as well, Jack. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask real quick, Jack, what kind of uh, uh, fact articles are you thinking about including in uh, Crime City Central? Um, well, it's, it's uh, up for grabs at the moment. Um, I have a friend who's, uh, who's a writer who... Um, Went to a, a conference on uh, four writers on uh, on crime fiction, and I, I don't know whether we can, whether whether it's ethical to broadcast or to podcast these things. But uh, she went to seminars on uh, sort of fifty ways to kill kill people with a knitting needle and things like that, and <laughs> and, and, and and she learned all sorts of facts about how deeply toxic nicotine is. So that if you take, I think it's something like if you take the nicotine out of you take five cigarettes 
and um, you, you soak them overnight or something in alcohol. The, nicot- the amount of nicotine that comes out of those cigarettes, if you inject it into someone, will kill them. Yeah. From just five I, cigarettes, I actually read a story. Like that. I read a story where that was the murder weapon, was, was nicotine. Yeah. You, you know what? That, Jack, that's fantastic, that, because he's getting deeper and deeper into all this kind of goodness. But that's, I think, what, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, they kind of, I've done this kind of, you know, this district of wonders kind of thing. It's just to have a break. Yes, you know, I'm kind of submerging myself in the, the kind of science fiction side, but it's lovely now just to have, you know, the crime there is a kind of breath of fresh air and the pulp there just to, because I think you'll always need that, even in my kind of reading abilities. I'm going on holiday, and on the audio, I've actually got science fiction, which is the new Red Shirts by Scalzi. I've got that on there. But I'm, my Kindle has got a Wilbur Smith on there, and I'm going into deepest, darkest <laughs> Africa, you know, in the kind of 1900s there. I'm totally leaving science fiction behind. And that's what I think, you know, hopefully, you know, people are like these shows when... You know, it's just offering like a little bit of kind of respite from the kind of the, the heavy doors of science fiction. Well, yeah. there's a lot of and, crossover, and, isn't there, across across all these genres, and some some stories fit into not just two, perhaps three or four different genres. Yeah. And uh, for the authors, from the author's point of view, it's just a matter of luck, which, which they get published in. Sometimes, I think. <laughs> Well, Dave, that was one of the kind of things, because there's going to be more so with you, like a crossover, you know, you've got a lot of kind of that industry and that side of things in that times was doing, you know, churning out the science fiction. But it's, and I think Fred, because Fred's, you know, Fred from, God, I think Fred was on day one, you know what I mean, listening to Starship Sober, <laughs> I roped Fred in to kind of be the, the editor over there. And I think Fred was a bit kind of wary of like, offerings, you know, because there's a lot of good science fiction show, you know, he's thinking, does Tony want to play that in the Starship Sova? But it's, <laughs> I certainly didn't, I want to kind of use guys to kind of run with that, because that's the, the year it came from, and I think it's, right. it's, it's part of that kind of whole ethos. Very much so, very much so, and, and especially with Pulp, because really, uh, and as we, as we go into more and more episodes, we're going to do the same thing that, that Starship Sopa has started the tradition of of adding those fact articles or the commentary or the the additional layer of perspective and context for these stories. And and really, when you look at it, every genre that you that we see in the world today, whether it's crime fiction or science fiction or fantasy or superheroes, ultimately either either has its foundation in pulp or received uh, such a, a, a focus and and an acceleration, uh, an influx into the public consciousness that really the foundation of those genres is found right here. So you're going to find, you know, some bizarre sci-fi stories in pulp. You're going to find some very weird uh, horror stuff. I mean, obviously, H.P. Lovecraft wasn't the only horror writer in the pulp era. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of serving as the the the, the bridge between Jack, your stuff, and Tony, you know, Starship Sofa, and Larry's Tales to Terrify. We're going to we're going to have our fingers in all y'all's pie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as well, Dave, I've got to thank you because you were put on the spot as well because, and it's the same with Jack as well, I've just been, you know, the emails that have been rattling out of late for everyone, you know, and Josh as well with the website. But Dave, I kind of batted off a few 
because it was what was quite nice was it was kind of this gentle kind of rule and you know oh yes we're going to launch in there that you know maybe kind of you know a few months time and then you know the time was ticking on and all of a sudden bang right Dave it's two weeks time I need a, <laughs> I need a tagline for the whole district of wonders that's what I'm going to thank you about you know thank you for because that tagline you know everyone's yeah. got a story in the district of wonders did that just come bang 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 come and find yours did that just roll off the tongue yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm among my many talents. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I run a, a, another podcast called uh, the Roundtable Podcast, and it's focused towards writers, where writers come on the show and and um, pitch story ideas, and then we and and an author kick it around. And my my love has always been words, uh, uh, words and stories. Uh, I'm a big Joseph Campbell. Uh, uh, fan, I've read m- many of his works and and love how a story unfolds through words, whether it's it's typed words or spoken words. That world is where I live. So thank you, I, I, I appreciate. I'm glad that the, the words that they kind of do kind of just naturally come out of my mouth, kind of align to what you're doing. It's there's there's that spirit of of lyricism in life and and i think if if we look for poetry if we look for adventure if we look for uh, uh, a fantasy element in our world we will find it and i've spent my whole life looking for that stuff so that's that's kind of where i live so so thank you i'm i'm glad uh, oh, honestly, that, i mean that's going I think, on that's going on the t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> i like that <laughs> Jack, did you? Because, like you say, again with you know, same as Dave, you know, I was batting off emails and that. And has it just come out of the blue? This, or are you trying to still kind of rein it in? Because you know, uh, Jack was saying, "Now I've got my own work, Tony, and I need to kind of, I need to do that until one o'clock, and then after one o'clock in the day, I'm quite prepared to answer some emails." And and then all of a sudden, you know, you just can't help the boatload. Just like Jack, do we need this? We need that? We need this? <laughs> Is it, are you still trying to keep a, a rain on a jack or is it starting to kind of, because it oh, does, I, it just invades all over? <laughs> I, I have to be very strict about uh, time slots. I mean, I have, um, I have you know, the day job and it has certain, uh, makes certain yeah. uh, demands of me and uh, there's strict, they're strict boundaries between the two. I can't let business in one area affect uh, the performance in another if, if, I mean, you know, to be brutal, if something's going pear-shaped, it must not allow anything, nothing must suffer as, as a result. It goes pear-shaped and it suffers on its own. I'll do my, you know, my, my best efforts. Yeah. So that's why I'm um, rather, um, well, the best word is strict, I think, about time <laughs> slots. I will work on, on this on specific days and it's planned and it happens. And uh, I'm, I'll meet most of my deadlines most of the time then whereas otherwise i don't think i would see that's that's really good that's good workmanship at jack having a plan because that's what i'm just totally not do you know what i mean and it's just like uh, uh, they're not with me everything's coming in at different angles you know what i mean i'm kind of i'm literally sending emails to you in the bath you know what i mean i'm sitting mm. book naked in a kind of gallons of water so right dave i need a tagline for you then i'm where it's, <laughs> what a thought you know jack's got his dear there you know and and I'm guessing it's Sunday, Jack, because we've got you here, and you've yes. been doing you've been doing some work there. So from now on, Jack, your Sundays it are gushed. <laughs> yes, because it yeah, is I, just it's all too tempting to get an email and just notice it because because you, you have to keep an eye on or I have to keep an eye on um, 
things that are are emergencies that someone is, is you know is desperate for but um sure. it's all too easy to say oh yes that's easy five minutes fix fix for that and what happens is you go into some software package to fix something up and then you find that there's an upgrade for that and all of a sudden there's an upgrade for the operating system you have for that and five hours later you think oh i can change the word now <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack, I, I aspire to your level of, of organization and structure to your life. I, I will achieve that one day, uh, and I'll use you as a model because I am not there. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm I, think, I think Dave's on my team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think Tony and I are, 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 are drinking the same Kool-Aid there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, listen, I'm so excited. Like I say, it's a big week for Starship so far, you know, like kind of kicking this off. Jack, you've been out there. You came out on, actually, when we're recording this, it's the, the, the eve before Jack's. Jack's goes out the first one on tomorrow, or actually Monday the 16th, it's out there. Dave's has gone out there as well, so just now, you know, the ball's rolling. And that was the, that's yep. the one thing, you know, that was, again... Get the, I wanted the I wanted the hosts, you know what I mean? But then I wanted this kind of backlog of work so we can just kind of take a breath and get ourselves kind of sorted. So now hopefully, you know, we've got oodles of stories there narrated, ready to go, and the kind of the team of narrators that I've built up is just do you know what I mean? It's it, it's massive, to be quite honest. Oh, yeah, so. and it's an awesome team too, Tony. Holy crap! With Fred Heimbaugh as as the assistant editor and and Tom O'Dwyer as the sound guy. Holy crap! And then you piloting the whole damn thing. It's it's. I've been amazed at how things have pulled together so quickly, so tightly. Uh, this is a great group, and and I'm I'm pumped about what we're going to be able to do uh, in the future. It's awesome. Yes, well, yes, it, I agree. I, I think the, the the organization here that you provide, Tony, is great. I mean, it's, to turn it around from idea to we're launching this week, that's really something. Well, I, I, I don't know if I'd call it organization, Jay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a bit of a manic glee in my eyes now. You do. <laughs> there you go, exactly. <laughs> I've, I've smacked kids and kicked dogs for long. You know what I mean? I need to get just back off there because the, my wife says, he's right. totally <laughs> And off we go into the fiction salt mines while, while <laughs> the master Tony whack, cracks the whip. We need this now. And it's like, oh, crap, okay. Well, it, it just, I'll tell you why. You know what I mean? It's like, you see, I think the, the recognition came when kind of Larry started doing, you know, Tales to Terrify and just took it, took that ball and just ran with it, you know. And each yeah. time now I'm kind of editing, you know, I'll just listen as a fan, you know, and you think, that can that could have been you know or it, it is it's going to get you know repeated again and so that format we've got you know get yep. a few stories in there get a get a host that kind of just knows you know has, has got the kind of the delivery and the voice and everything like that and you can just do so much especially nows to kind of day and age you know what I mean like in the broadband internet world it's just the whole thing and it, it you know what is a good thing for me mind it keeps me. You know, I don't know how what you feel, Jack, or you feel, Dave, but it just gives me something to kind of latch on to because I'm sure I would be just, you know, I love throw myself into this kind of job, but I'm sure if I wasn't, like, doing everything like this, I'd be just yeah. sitting there with a bag of popcorn watching TV. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the notion that, that 
every one of these aspects of the District of Wonders uh, is, is infusing the world with more awesomeness, with more fabulous stories, more you know vocal talent. That's a part of it as well. And just really awakening, I think, in, in the people that discover us, uh, a sense that there is such a, a broad and, and deep world of fiction and stories and tales out there. It's, it's, it feels like we're doing something important as well as something incredibly fun. See, that's why he got the job. You know, that's why he wrote that tagline, man. Do you know what I mean? I want you to be press officer. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Well, gentlemen, honestly, again, what can I say? You, you, you know, and I think, like I say, I think it's a bit more new for Jack. You know, Jack, you've done a few narrations for Starships. Dave's dipped his toes in the kind of podcasting world. You know, you've got your, your round table there, Dave. But I think for Jack, it's just yep. been a bit of a kind of scary ride, but... Hey Jack, honestly, I'm so you know so pleased that you you kind of and you said yes. You I'm, know, I'm the, hanging on to the microphone here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we said individual. Yes. He said yes straight away. You know, so gentlemen, it's honestly thank you for coming on and you know and like say kickstart and district of yep. wonders. It's been excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> There you go. Listen, please pop over and subscribe to those shows. Do you know what I mean? That would mean everything to us if you came over and started downloading those and listening to them. Do you know what I mean? We kicked off the crime one with, you know, just like Lawrence Block. Just a, like a super cool story. You know, one of these kind of hip stories by Lawrence Block. And just total adventure. Do you know what I mean? With, with protecting Project Pulp. Just fantastic. And... When you listen to them, do you know what I mean? When they're, kind of, they're getting into the footing now, Jack and Dave, do you know, it's just fantastic. So please, I would love you if you could pop over there, support the show, leave some comments, emails, you know, that would be fantastic. So next up is, like I say, a little promo by our very own Amy H. Sturgis to do with the Hunger Games and science fiction tradition, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I want to thank Tony for inviting me back to do another of the Holodeck Workshop series. The next one that I'm going to be doing will be on September the 1st. That's a Saturday, and it will be called The Hunger Games and the Science Fiction Tradition. I've been teaching The Hunger Games since before there was a film, in fact, before there was a third book in the trilogy, and as fortune would have it, the film was um, shot in part right pretty much in my backyard. So I've had a long and interesting relationship with the texts, and I'm looking forward to talking about The Hunger Games in its larger context, that is, in relationship to science fiction. We're blocking out two hours for this holodeck event this will include a lecture and a live Q&A session. And just to give you a sense, here's the outline for the lecture. The first of four sections will be about the mythological underpinnings of the Hunger Games. Where did Panem get its name? Is the Hunger Games missing a minotaur? Like many authors of science fiction, Suzanne Collins built her fictional universe on the foundations of classical myths and the civilizations that gave them life. So in this section, I'll discuss the history and legends that inspired the Hunger Games. In the second section, I'll talk about futuristic science. 
What debt do the tracker jackers and mocking jays owe H.G. Wells, for example? In the world of the Hunger Games, some human citizens of the capital alter themselves to resemble animals, while others alter animals to serve as agents of spycraft, torture, and execution. So there's genetic engineering, body modification, and of course the unintended consequences that occur when the natural and the human-made mix. So we'll trace the lineage of such concepts back to their roots in the modern beginnings of science fiction. I'm particularly looking forward to the third section of the talk, in which I'll talk about post-apocalyptic landscapes and dystopian nightmares, because the Hunger Games depicts a post-war, post-apocalyptic landscape just familiar enough to seem real. So real, in fact, that many fans have used the clues from the novels and film to construct maps of its borders. Its dystopian elements, from constant surveillance to propaganda wars, may also feel rather close to home for contemporary audiences. So, in this section, we'll discuss *The Hunger Games* in its larger context of science fictional worlds gone wrong, drawing connections between Suzanne Collins and her many predecessors, including Mary Shelley, the mother of science fiction herself. And we'll finish by talking about young adult heroes and heroines in science fiction. Many reviews today say that Katniss Everdeen is a new kind of heroine, but is she, or is she simply the newest and best incarnation of a long-standing trope, the kind of young protagonist that science fiction's been celebrating for generations? We'll identify some of the key ancestors of Katniss and consider how she puts a new spin on a classic genre convention. I hope you'll consider joining me for this special Starship Sofa holodeck workshop. Please visit starshipsofa.com for more information, and perhaps I'll see you. I hope I will on September first. Thanks. <laughs> There you go. I will have got a link on the kind of today's post with that little link over to the, the, the place where we're selling the tickets. And there's the widget on the left, on the right hand. I've, got, I've always got to see that left, right, right, right hand side of the website. So that would be fantastic. First of September, it is kicking off. Please pop over there, and would love to see you there. That would be fantastic. It is all live video. It is all live video from Professor Amy H. Sturgis. So the main fiction is digging by Ian Macdonald. In short story terms, Ian Macdonald kicked off with Islands of the Dead in 1982, and his kind of final one, or he's, he's still going. I often say a final one, but the last one he wrote was a smart, well-mannered uprising of the dead, which came out from Solaris Rise and New Solaris Book of Science Fiction in 2011, edited by Ian Waits. Novels by Ian Macdonald, out on Blue Six, nineteen eighty nine. King of Morning, Queen of Day, nineteen ninety one. Then he had Scissors Cut Paper Wrap Stone, Necroville, a nineteen ninety four. Sacrifice of Fools came out in nineteen ninety six. Then Brazil came out in two thousand seven, and The Dervish House in two thousand and ten. Loads of kind of you know other different collections. You know the fiction series Chaga. Start off with Toward Kilimanjaro in 1990, and ended up with Tendelio's Story in 2000, 
And actually, I got, I remember getting Chaga the paperback when that came out oodles ago. It says here, 1995. Ian MacDonald was born in 1960, is a British science fiction novelist living in Belfast. His themes include nanotechnology, poor cyberpunk settings. He has been up for so many awards. You know, he was a nominee for the Nebula Best Novelette, the Locust Award. He came first with that with Desolation Road. He's been Hugo Award nominee for River of Gods and Brazil and best for Best Novel nominee for The Dervish House. I mean, that Dervish House, as you know, it was, it was up there as well for Arthur C. Clarke Award. It was nominated for that. And the John W. Campbell Memorial Award and the British Science Fiction Award. And it's one, I haven't read that story, but it's a book that I have just had so many emails about, you know, just seeing how good that was. I put a link on to Ian's live journal page. This story that you're about to hear digging first came out on Life on Mars, Tales from the New Frontier, which was edited by Jonathan Strawn in 2011. It was also picked up for Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 6, and the year's Best Science Fiction 29th Annual Edition Collection by Gardner Doswas. It is narrated by Rita DiBello. And Rita has done a couple of stories for Starship Sova as well. I'll put a link on to Rita's site. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Digging by Ian MacDonald Tash was wise to the ways of the wind. She knew its many musics, sometimes like a flute across the pipes and tubes, sometimes a snare drum rattle in the guy lines and cable stays, or a death drone moan from the turbine gantries and a scream of sand past the irised shut windows when the equinox dust storms blew for weeks on end. From the rails and drive bogies of the scoop line, the wind drew a wail like a demon choir, and from the bucket set a clattering, clicking rattle so that she imagined tiny clockwork angels scampering up and down the hundreds of kilometres of conveyor belts. In the storm season gales, it came screaming in across Isidus's billion-year-dead impact basin, clawing at the eaves and gables of West Diggory, tearing at the tiered roofs so hard Tash feared it would rip them right off and send them tumbling end over end, down, down into the depths of the big dig. That would be the worst thing. Everyone would die badly, eyeballs and fingertips and lips exploding, cheeks bursting with red veins. She had nightmares about suddenly looking up to see the roof ripping away and the naked sky and the air all blowing away in one huge shout of exhalation. Then your eyeballs exploded. She imagined how that would sound. Two soft, popping squelches. Then in-brother Yoche told her you couldn't hear your eyeballs exploding because the air would be too thin and the whole story was a legend of mischievous grandparents and sub-aunts who liked to scare under fours but it made her think about how fragile West Diggory was and the other three stations of the Big Dig. Spindly and top-heavy, domes piled upon half-domes upon semi-domes, swooping wing roofs and perilous balconies, all resting on the finger-thin cantilevers that connected the great excavating city to the traction bogies. Like big spiders. Tash knew spiders. She had seen spiders in a book, and once, in a piece of video excitedly shot by Lady Cousin Nan in North Cutter, a real spider in a real web, trembling in the perennial beat of the buckets working up the scoop line from the head of the big dig, five kilometres downslope. 
Lady Cousin Nan had poked at the spider with her fingers, fat and brown as bread and high magnification. The spider had frozen, then scuttled for the corner of the window frame, curled into a tiny ball of legs, and refused to do anything for the rest of the day. The next day, when Nan and her camera returned, it was dead, 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 dried into a little desiccated husk of shell. It must have come in a crate in the supply run down from the high orbital, though everything they shipped from orbit was supposed to be clean. Beyond the window, with a little translucent corpse hung vibrating in its web, red rock and wind and the endless march of the buckets along the rails of the excavating conveyor. Buckets and wind, tied together. Wind. Fact one. When the buckets ceased, then and only then would the wind stop. Fact two. All Tasha's life, it had blown in the same direction. Downhill. Tash Galema Punyo was wise to the ways of the wind, and buckets, and random spiders, and on moving day the wind was a long, many-part harmony for pipes drawn from the sand-polished steel rails, a flutter of the kites and blessing banners and wind socks and lucky fish that West Diggory flew from every rooftop and pylon and stanchion, a sudden caress of a veering eddy in the small of her back that made Tash shiver and stand upright on the high veranda in her pea-suit, a too intimate touch. She was getting too big for the old pea-suit. It was tight and chafed in the wrong places. Tight it had to be, a stretched skin of gas-impermeable fabric, but things were showing. My, how you've grown things! That Haramwe Odonye, who was an out-cousin in from area, and thus allowed to notice such things, noticed and commented on. Last moving day, half a long year before, in an attempt to camouflage the bumps and creases and curves, she had drawn all over the high visibility skin with marker pen. There were more animals on her skin than on the whole of Mars. Up and out on moving day, that was the tradition, from the very, very old to the very, very young, blinking up out of their pressure cocoons, every soul in West Diggory came out onto the balconies and galleries and walkways. Safety was part of the routine. With every half-year wrench of West Diggory's thousand of tons of architecture into movement, the possibility increased that a joint might split or a pressure dome shatter. Eyeball squelch pop time. But safety was only a small part. Movement was what West Diggory was for, like the wind, downward, ever downward. The terrace of the Grand Regard was the highest point on West Diggory. Only the banners of the Isidus Planitia Excavating Company, eternally billowing in the unvarying downslope wind, and the wind turbines stood higher. Climbing the ladders, Tash felt out Cousin Haramwe's eyes on her, watching from the boy's pavilion. His boy gaze drew the other young males onto their high and rickety terrace. The pea suit was indeed tight, but good tight. Tash enjoyed how it moved with her, holding her in where she wanted to be held, emphasising what she wanted emphasised. Hey, good snake, out cousin Haramwe called on the common channel. On her seventh and a half birthday, Tash had drawn a dream snake on her pea suit skin, a diamond pattern loop with its tail at the base of her spine, curled around the left curve of her ass and its head buried in her inner thigh. It had been exciting to draw. It was more exciting to wear on moving day, the only time she ever wore the pea suit. Are you ogling my ophidian? 
Tash taunted back to the hoots of the other boys as she climbed up onto gallery of exalted vistas to be with her sisters and cousin and in-cousins and out-cousins, all the many ways in which Tash could be related in a gene pool of only 2,000 people. The guys hooted. Tash shimmied her shoulders where little birds were drawn. The boys liked her insulting them in words they didn't understand. Listen well, look well, I'm the best show on Mars. A thousand banners rattled in the unending wind. Kites dipped and fluttered, painted with birds and butterflies and stranger aerial creatures that had only existed in the legends of distant Earth. Streamers pointed the way to West Diggory, downhill, always downhill. The lines of buckets full of Martian soil marched up the conveyor from the dig point, invisible over the close horizon under the legs of West Diggory, toward the unseen summit of Mount Incredible, where they tipped their load on its ever-growing summit before cycling back down the underside of the conveyor. The story was that the freshly dug regolith at the bottom of the hole was the colour of gold. Exposure to the atmosphere on its long journey upslope turned it Mars red. She turned to better feel the shape of the wind on every part of her body. This pea suit so needed replacing. There was more to her shiver than just the caress of the air in motion. Wind and words, they were the same stuff. If she threw big and fancy words, words that gave her joy and made her laugh from the shape they made from moving air, it was because they were living wind itself. A shiver ran up through the catwalk grills and railings and into Tash Galemapunyo. The engineers were running up the traction generators. West Diggory shuddered and thrummed as the tokamaks drew resonances and steel harmonies from its girders and cantilevers. Tash's molars ached. Then there was a jolt that threw old and young alike off balance, grasping for handrails, stanchions, cables, one another. There was an immense shriek like a new moon being pulled live from the body of the world, shuddering creaks each so loud Tash could hear them through her ear protectors. Steel wheels turned, grinding on sand. West Diggory began to move. People waved their hands and cheered. The noise reduction circuits on the common channel brought the din down to a surge of delighted giggling. The wheels, each taller than tan. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Ground round, slow as growing. West Diggory, perched on its cantilevers, inched down its 18 tracks, tentative as an old woman stepping from a diggler. This was motion on the glacial, the geological scale. It would take 10 hours for West Diggory to make its scheduled descent into the big dig. You had to be sure to have eaten and drunk enough because it wasn't safe to go inside. Tash had breakfasted lightly at the Commons and the Raven Sorority, where the indoors lived together after they turned five. The semi-zoic fabric absorbed everything without stink or stain, but it was far from cool to piss your suit. Unless you were up and out on a job. Then it was mandatory. Music trilled on the common channel, a cheery little toe-tapper. Tash gritted her teeth. She knew what had heralded, the West Diggory Down. No one knew when, where or who had started the tradition of the moving day dance. Tash suspected it was a joke that no one had recognised and so became literal. She slid behind a stanchion as her raven sisters formed up and the boys up on the boys' pavilion bowed and raised their hands. Slip away, slip away before it starts. Up the steps and along the clattering catwalk to the outermost preview. From this distant perch, a bird cage of steel at the end of a slender pier, a lantern suspended over the sand, Tash surveyed all West Diggory, her domes and gantries and pods and tubes and flapping banners and her citizens. So few of them, Tash thought, formed up into lines and squares for the dance. She tuned out the common channel. Strange, them stepping gaily, hand in hand, up and down the lines, dosy do and pea-suits and face-masks and total silence. The old seemed to enjoy it. They had no dignity. Look how fat some of them were in their pea-suits. Tash turned away from the rituals of West Diggory to the great, subtle slope of the big dig, following the lines up the slope. She was on the edge of the age where you could leave West Diggory, but she had heard that up there, beyond Mount Incredible, the small world curved away so quickly in all directions that the horizon was only three kilometres distant. The big dig held different horizons. It was a huge cone sunk into the surface of a sphere. An alternative geometry worked here. The world didn't curve away, it curved inward, a circle over 300 kilometres round where it met the surface of Mars. The world radiated outward. Tash could follow the radiating spokes of the scoop lines all the way of the edge of the world and beyond to the encircling ring mountain of Mount Incredible that reached the edge of space. Peering along the curve of the big dig through the dust haze constantly thrown up by the ceaseless excavating, she could just make out the sun glitter from the gantries of North Cutter, which, like West Diggory, was making its slow descent deeper into the pit. A flicker of thought would up the magnification on her visor, and she would be able to look clear across 80 kilometres of airspace to area and spy on whatever celebrations they held there, at the first and greatest of the excavating cities on moving day. Maybe she might see a girl like herself, balanced on some high and perilous perch, looking out across the bowl of the world. The figures on the platforms and terraces broke apart, bowed to each other, lost all pattern and rhythm, and became random again. Moving day down was over for another half year. Tash flicked on the common channel. Tash liked to be apart, different, a girl of words and wit, but she also loved to be immersed in West Diggory's never-ending babble of chat and gossip and jokes and family news. Together, the excavating cities had a population of less than 2,000 humans. 
Small, complex societies, isolated from the rest of the planet, gush words like springs, like torrents and floods. The river of words, the only river that Mars knew. Tasha's peasuit circuitry was smart enough to adjust the voices so that they spoke at the volume and distance they would have in atmosphere. Undifferentiated, the flood of West Diggory voices would have overwhelmed her. She turned her head this way, that way, eavesdropping. There was later Shashinwe Apunyo, Queen Beeing again. Tash had seen pictures of bees like she had seen birds. On arrival day, when the excavating cities finally reached the bottom of the big dig, there would be birds and bees and even spiders. There was Great Out Aunt Yoto, seeming enthusiastic but always seasoned with a pinch of criticism. Oh, and another thing, people weren't performing the dance moves right. The engineers had mistuned the tokamax and her titanium hip was aching. Was it her or did more bits fall off West Diggory every time? They never would have allowed that in South Delving, her family home. A sudden two-tone siren cut across the 400 voices of West Diggory. Emergency teams slapped their pea suits to warning yellow and rushed to their positions. Everyone hurried to the muster points, then relaxed as the medics discovered the nature of the emergency. The common channel flooded with laughter. Haramwe Odonye, during a particularly energetic caper in the West Diggory Down, had slipped and sprained his ankle. Big Dig Figs and Facts Population 1,833 Divided between the four excavating cities of Clockwise, South Delving, West Diggory, North Carter and Area, Aries Reengineering of Environment and Atmosphere. Total Martian population, 5,217. Elevation. At the digging head, as of Martian year 112 Janulum 1, minus 23 kilometres below Martian mean gravity surface, no sea level. Same date, highest point of mountain possible, 15 kilometres above MGS. Diameter of the big dig at Martian MGS, 516 kilometres. Circumference of the Big Dig at Martian MGS, 1,622 kilometres. Angle of the Big Dig excavation surface, 5.754 degrees. That's pretty gentle. The scoop line can't handle more than an 8-degree slope. To the casual human eye, one that hasn't grown up inside the gentle dish of the Big Dig, that would look almost flat. But it's not flat. That's why it's the key figure. Those 5.754 degrees are going to make Mars habitable. Date of commencement of the Big Dig. Autumn March 23, Martian Year 70. 2.30 in the afternoon, on schedule, the scoop lines excavated and the bucket teeth took their first bites of Isidus Planitia. Volume of the Big Dig, as of the above date, 1,813,000 cubic kilometres, all piled up neatly into Mount Impossible, the ring-shaped mountain that surrounds the Big Dig like the wall of an old impact crater. Not entirely surrounds... Mount Impossible has been constructed with four huge valleys, Windrush, Zephyr, Sirocco and Storm of the Black Plums. Howling, wind-haunted, storm-scoured canyons, the same wind that sings over the tombs of the diggers who have died in the course of the Great Excavation and unfailingly stirs the flags and streamers of the mobile cities far below. Total mass of Martian surface excavated in the big dig to date, 7.1 times 10 to the 15th tonnes. Big Dig Figs and Facts, the numbers that shape Tasha's world. Tash was in the orangery when the core came down through the rows of breadfruit trees. 
Like the moving day dance, the name Orangery was generally considered another joke that had run away and taken up residence in the ventilators and crawl spaces and power conduits of the excavating city, as this Baroque glass dome had never grown oranges. The rows of breadfruit and plantains and bananas and other high-carb staples gave camouflage and opportunity for West Diggory's young people to meet and talk and scheme and flirt. Malaba wants to see Tash. Pass it on. Sweto, tell Chunya that Malaba wants to see Tash. Corey, have you seen Tash? Oh, I think she was down in the plantains, but she might have moved on to the breadfruit. Well, tell her Malaba wants to see her. By leaps and misunderstandings, by staggers and misapprehensions, by devious spirals of who liked whom and who was talking to whom and who wasn't and who was hooking up with whom and who had finished with whom, the message spiralled in along the web of leaf-mould-smelling plants to Tash, spraying the breadfruit. A simple call, a message, would have reached her directly, but where there are only a hundred of you, true social networking is mouth-to-mouth. In Aunt Malaba. She was a legend, a statue of woman, gracious and noble, adored far beyond West Diggory. Her dark skin was lustrous as night, her soul as star-filled. To be in her presence was to be blessed in ways you would not immediately understand, but more thrilling to Tash was that Inant Malaba was the chief service engineer for the Northwest Sector scoop lines. The summons to her office, a little glass and aluminium bubble like a bunion on one of West Diggory's steel feet, could mean only one thing. Out. Out and up. So Haramwe sprained his ankle. Every part of in Aunt Malaba's tiny office, from the hand-carved olivine desk to the carafe of water that stood in it, shook to the rattle of the buckets hurtling up the scoop line. Malaba raised an eyebrow. Tash realised a response was due. Are his injuries debilitating? Debilitating. Malaba gave a flicker of a smile. You could say that. He'll be out for a week or so. He came down heavily, silly boy, showing off. When is your birthday? Tasha's heart leapt. She knew. Everyone knew everything all the time. The game was pretending not to know. October 5th. Three months. Malaba appeared to consider for a moment. Peiko Rubens Apollo says for all your fancy talk, you've a good head and better sense, and do what you're told. That's good, because I don't need attitude problems or last-minute good ideas when I'm out on the line. For once, the words failed Tash. They hissed from her like air from a ruptured atmosphere cell. She waved her hands in speechless delight. I'm taking a digger up line 12 to Windrush Valley. The feed tokamaks have been fluctuating nastily. Probably a soft fail in a command chipset. They get a lot of radiation up there. Now I need someone with me to hold things and make tea and generally make intelligent conversation. Are you interested? Still, the words would not come. The rule was that you did not leave the excavating cities until you were eight, when you were technically an adult. Rules broke and bent with the frequency of scoop line breakdowns, but three months was a significant proportion of the long Martian year. Out. Out and up. Up the line into the windy valley. In a diggler with Inant Malaba. Oh, yes, yes, I'd love to, Tash finally squeaked. Now Malaba unleashed the full radiance of her smile, and it was like sunrise. It was solstice lights. It was the warmth of the glow lamps in the orangery. 
I say you are an adult citizen of West Diggory, Tash Galemapunyo, the smile said, and if I say it, all say it. Be at the outlook twelve at fourteen o'clock, Malaba said. You do know how to make tea, don't you? Still not got it? It's easy, 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 easy. Easy as a heezy, which is a digger saying. A heezy is the lever on a scoop line bucket that, when struck by the dobrin, which is a different type of lever found at the load-off end of the scoop line, tips the contents of the bucket down Mount Incredible. Heezy peasy easy. It's all because air has weight. Air's not nothing. It's gas, in Mars's case, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, argon, oxygen, and the leaked breathings from the hundred and something years that humans have scratched and scrabbled claw holes on its red earth. It has mass. It has weight. And it flows the same way that water flows, to the lowest point. Wind is air flowing. People say, no one knows why the wind blows. That's stupid nonsense. Wind blows from high to low, high pressure to low pressure, high altitude to low altitude, down the slopes of mountains, through canyons and valleys. The air pressure at the bottom of the great and primeval rift of Valles Marineris is ten times that in the long, cold volcanic calderas atop Olympus Mons. Titanic gales and fog blow through that valley. The fog is because the atmospheric pressure at the bottom of the valley is enough, just enough, to allow water to exist as vapour but that's still not enough to support big life. That's like higher than Earth's highest mountain. That's fingertip, lip-exploding, eyeball-squelching, cheek-bursting pressure. Bug life, yes. Big life, no. That's not enough to make Mars a green paradise, a home for humanity, a fertile pool of life beyond little blue Earth. What you need is deep. Thirty kilometres deep. Deeper than any place on earth is deep. Deeper than even Olympus Mons, mightiest mountain on all the worlds, is high. And because air has weight, because atmosphere flows and the wind blows, gas will fill up the hole. That's the wind that rattles the banners and turns the rotors of West Diggory. As the gas flows, the pressure grows, until the day comes when the atmospheric pressure at the bottom of the hole is enough for you to walk around without a pea suit in just your skin if you have the urge and your skin is pretty enough. Earth atmospheric pressure. Pressure. That's always been the problem with making Mars habitable. Get all the gas into one place. When you've got enough of it, turning it into something you can breathe is the easy bit. That's just bugs and plants and life. 30 kilometres deep. The scoop lines are at minus 26 kilometres. That's another five M years before they hit atmospheric baseline. Then they'll level out the floor of the crater, take away some of the sides, expand the flat area. That will all seem so flat, the atmospheric gradient so subtle, that you will seem to be walking out into breathlessness and lightheadedness rather than ascending into it. Fifty years after her in-grandfather Tehum made the first incision, the big dig will be dug. Tash will be seventeen and a half when the wind rushing down the sides of the big dig finally fails and the rotors stop and the banners fall and the excavating cities finally come to a rest. Twenty-six kilometres upslope, Inant Malaba gave the sign for Tash to throw the levers to disengage the diggler from the scoop line. Thus far, the big world of outside had been a thumping disappointment to Tash. 
She had yet to be outside, properly outside, two figures in a Marscape outside, shivering your pea suit outside. She had transited from plastic bubble by plastic tube to plastic bubble connected by its grip on the scoop line to home. This was what Tash Galema Puno saw from the transparent bubble of the Diggler. Sand, 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 a rock there. Sand, 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 rock, rock. Oh, some pebbles. Sand, grit, sand, more grit. Something between pebble and grit. Something between grit and sand. A bit of old abandoned machinery. Wow, wow, wow. Dust drifted up around it. Sand, sand, sand. West Diggory was still visible down the dwindling thread of the scoop line, now truly the size of a spider. The enormous, horizonless perspectives robbed Tash of anything by which she could judge movement. The sand, the buckets, the unchanging, gentle gradient that went up halfway to space. Only by squinting down through the floor glass at the blurred, grainy surface did she get any sense of movement. 26 vertical kilometres equaled 260 surface kilometres equaled five and a half hours in a plastic bubble with a relative you've grown up in enforced proximity with but until now never really known or talked to. Everyone loves Inant Malaba the Magnificent, that's the legend, but after five hours, aunt and niece, Tash began to wonder if this was another wind-whisper legend blown around the corners and crannies of West Diggory. She was beautiful, a feast for the iron soul, all those things an eight-year-old girl hopes for herself. And did Tash not share the DNA, given that the excavating city's gene pool was as shallow as spit, hence all the careful arrangements of in-relatives and out-relatives and who would be sent to one of the other excavating cities and who would stay? All those things a girl of almost eight wants for herself, but try as she might, and did, Tash could not engage her. Fancy funny words of the type Tash treasured, Poems, puns, riddles, guessing games, break-the-code games, allusions and circumspect questions, direct questions. To them all, Inant Malaba shook her head and smiled and bent over the controls and the monitors and checked her kit and said not a word. So tea, lots of tea, and muttering little rhymes to the rhythm of the huge balloon wheels as the scoop line hauled Diggler 6 up the side of the biggest excavation in the solar system. But now they were released from the scoop line and Malaba was standing at the steering column, driving the Diggler under its own power. It was still sand, sand, sand and occasional rock, but Tash knew a gnaw of excitement. She was free, disconnected from the umbilicals of life for the first time. She was out in the wild world. The scoop line dwindled to a thread, to invisibility behind her. Ahead she saw a notch on the edge of vision. Windrush Valley. All the wind-blown words stopped. A flaw in the horizon. A place beyond the big dig. Beyond that declivity was the whole curved world. In the silence, Inant Malaba turned from the control column. I think you could have a go now. So this was what she'd been waiting for. Tash to run out of words and finally listen. The diggler was ridiculously simple to drive. Plant your feet firmly at the drive column. Push forward to feed power to the traction motors and the wheel hubs. Pull back to brake. Yaw to steer. There was even a little holder on the side of the drive column for your tea. Tash giggled with nervous glee as she gingerly pushed forward the stick, and the bubble of pressure glass slung between the giant orange tyres stuttered forward. Within thirty seconds she had it. 
Thirty seconds later, she was pushing it, sneaking the speed bar up, looking for places where she could make the diggler skip over rocks. I'd go easy on that throttle, Malaba said. The battery life is eight hours. That's why we ride the scoop line up and down again. You don't want to get stuck up here with night coming down, no traction and no heat. Tash eased the stick back, but not before the diggler hit the small boulder at which she had discreetly aimed and bounced all four wheels in the air. Malaba smiled that morning sun smile. Then shoulder by shoulder they stood at the controls and rode up into the Orange Valley. The land rose up on either side, higher as they drove deeper, kilometres high. They felt like oppression to Tash, shouldering close and ominous, their heights breathless and haunted with dark things that lived in the sky. At the same time she felt hideously small and exposed in the fragile glass ornament of the diggler. The wind was rising. She could feel the diggler shake on its suspension, hear the shriek and moan through the cables. The controls fought her, but she pushed the little bubble deeper and deeper into Windrush Valley. When her forearms ached and the sinews on her neck stood out from fighting the atmosphere of Mars pouring through this two-kilometre-wide notch in Mount Incredible, Malaba leaned over and tapped a pre-programmed course into the computer. Suit up, she said. We'll be there in ten minutes. The Tokamak station was a wind-scoured blister of construction plastic, hunkering between a boulder field and a stretch of polished olivine. It was only when the diggler slowed to a stop and fired sand anchors that Tash realised that it was nearer and smaller than she had thought. It was not a distant, vast city. The power plant was only slightly higher than the diggler's mammoth wheels. The wind rotor, spinning as if it would suddenly leap from its pylon and spin madly away through the upper air, was no bigger than her outstretched hands. Mask sealed. Tash ran her fingers around the join with her pea-suit hood and gave in-aunt Malaba two thumbs up. I'm dipping the diggler. There was a high-pitched shriek of air being vented into the tanks, a whistle that ebbed into silence as the pressure dropped to match the outside environment. The scribbled-over pea-suit felt tight and stiff. This was true eyeball-squelch altitude. Then Malaba popped the door and Tash followed her out and down the ladder onto the wild surface of Mars. Gods and teeth, but the wind was brutal. Tash balled her fists and squared her shoulders and lowered her head to battle through it to the yellow and blue chevroned Tokamak station. She could feel the sand whipping across the skin of her pea-suit. She didn't like to think of the semi-zoic skin abrading cell by cell. She imagined it wailing in pain. A tap on the shoulder, Malaba gestured for her to hook her safety line onto the door winch. Then in-aunt and in-niece punched through the big wind to the shelter of the tokamak shell. Out. Out in the world. Up high. If Tash kept walking into the wind, she would pass through Windrush Valley and come to a place where the world curved away from her, not toward her. The desire to do it was unbearable. Out of the hole. All it would take would be one foot in front of the other. They would take her all the way around the world and back again to this place. The gale of possibility died. It was only ever circles. Malaba tapped her again on the shoulder to remind her that there was work to be done here. Tash took the uni tool and unscrewed the inspection hatch. Milaba plugged in her diagnosticators. She was glorious to watch at work, easy and absorbed. 
but it was long work and Tasha's attention wandered to the little meandering dust dervishes that spun up into a small tornado for a few seconds, staggered down the valley and collapsed into swirling sand. Willy-willies, Malaba said. You want to be careful with those. They're tricksy. As I thought, she pointed at the readout. A hard fail in the chipset. She pulled a new blade out of her thigh pouch and slid it into the control unit. Lights flashed green. Inside its shielded dome, the tokamak grumbled and woke up with a shiver that sent the dust rising from the ground. Tash watched the wind whirl into a dozen dust devils dancing around each other. Just going to check the supply line. You stay here. She headed up the valley along the line of the power cable. The dust devils swirled in toward one another. They merged. They fused. They became one, a true dust demon. Looks all right, in Aunt Malaba called. Malaba, I don't like the look. The dust demon spun toward Tash, then at the last moment veered away and tracked up the valley. Malaba! Malaba hesitated. The hesitation was death. The dust demon bore down on her. She tried to throw herself away, but it spun over her, lifted her, threw her hard and far, smashed her down onto the smooth, polished olivine. Tash saw her faceplate shatter in a spray of shards and water vapour. It was random. It was mad. It was a chance in a billion. It can't happen. It was an affront to order and reason, but it had, and there Malaba lay on the hard olivine. Oh, my gods! Oh, my gods! Oh, my gods! For a moment, Tash was paralysed. For a moment, she did not know what to do, that she could do anything, that she must do something. Then she was running up the valley. The dust demon veered toward Tash. Tash shrieked, then it staggered away, broke itself on the boulders and spun down to dust again. The pea suit would seal automatically, but Enant Malaba had moments before her eyeballs froze. Oh, help, 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 help! Tash cried, her hands pressed in Malaba's face, trying to will heat into it. Then she saw the red button on the safety line harness. She hit it and was almost jolted off her feet as the winch on the Diggler reeled Malaba in. Tash hit the emergency channel. This is Diggler 6! This is Diggler 6 in Windrush Valley! This is an emergency! Of course it is. It's the emergency channel. She tried to calm her voice as the winch lifted the limp Malaba into the air. We have a suit DP situation. We have a suit DP. Hello, Diggler 6. This is Diggory West Emergency Services. Please identify yourself. This is Tash Gilema Punyo. It's Malaba. Tash, control here. Tash recognised out Uncle Yoyote's voice. Get back. Get back here. You should have enough power. We'll send another Diggler up the line to meet you. But you, darling, you have to do it. We can't get to you in time. It's up to you. Get back to us. It's all you can do. Of course, it was. All she could do. No rescue swooping from the skies in a world where nothing could fly. No speed star scorching up the slope of the big dig in a world where the scoop line was the fastest means of transport. She was on her own. It took all her strength to swing Malaba through the hatch into the Diggler cab and seal the lock. Tash almost popped her faceplate. Almost. She repressurized the Diggler. The air shriek built to a painful screech, then stopped. But Malaba was so still, so cold. Her face was white with frost where her breath had frozen into her skin. It would never be the same again. Tash knelt, turned her cheek to her in-aunt's lips. A whisper, a sigh, a suspicion, a susurration. She was breathing. 
But it was cold, so cold, death cold, Mars cold in the diggler. Tash slapped the heater up to the maximum and jigged around the tiny cab. Condensation turned the windows opaque, then cleared. Back. She had to get back. Was there an auto-return program? Where would she find it? Where would she even begin looking? Wasting precious instants, wasting precious instants. Tash took the control column, stamped on the pedal to release the anchors, and engaged the traction motors. Turning was difficult. Turning was scary. Turning forced a small moan of fear when the wind got under the diggler and she felt the right side lift. If it went over here, they were both dead. This was not fun driving. There was no glee, no wee at every bounce. Tash tensed and clenched, fearful that the diggler would roll over and shatter like an egg, smash an axle, any number of new terrors that only appear when your life depends on everything working perfectly. Come on, come on, come on. The battery gauge was dwindling with terrifying speed. This was outside. This was the horizoned world. Where was the scoop line? Surely it hadn't been this far. Come on, come on, come on. A line on the sand, but so far. Power at 12%. Where had it gone? What had she used it on? The heating blast? The emergency rep? The burn on the winch? Call home. That would be sensible. That would be the act of a girl with a good head and better sense who did what she was told. But it would use power. Batteries at 7%. But now she could see the scoop line, the laden buckets above, the empty buckets below, bucket after bucket after bucket. She drove the diggler on. Matching velocities with the scoop line was teeth-gritting, nerve-stretching work. Tash had to drop the diggler into the space between the buckets and hold exact speed. A push too fast would ride up on the preceding bucket. Too slow and she would be rear-ended by the bucket behind. And ever edging inward, inward closer to the line as the battery slid from green to red. Lights, flashes, Tash threw the lever, the shackle engaged. Tash rolled away from the drive column to Malaba on the floor. Tash. A whisper, a sigh, a suspicion, a susurration. It's all right, it's all right, don't talk, run the scoop line. Dash, are my eyes open? Yes, they are. A tiny sigh. Then I can't see. Dash, talk to me. What about? I don't know anything, everything. Just talk to me. We're on the line, did you say? We're on the line, we're going home. Five hours then. Talk to me. So she did. Tash pulled cushions and mats around her into a nest and sat holding her in-aunt's head, and she talked. Talked about her friends and her in-sisters and her out-sisters and who would go away from West Diggory and who would stay. She talked about boys and how she liked them looking at her but still wanted to be different and special, not to be taken for granted. Funny Tash, odd Tash... She talked about whether she would marry, which she didn't think she would, not as far as she could see, and what she would do then if she didn't. She talked about the things she loved, like swimming and cooking vegetables and drawing and words, words, words. She talked about how she loved the sound and shape of words, the sound of them as something quite different from what they meant and how you could put them together to say things that could not possibly be and how the words came to her, like they were blown on the wind, shaped from wind, the wind brought to life. 
She talked of these in words that weren't clever or mouth-filling, words said quietly and simply and honestly, saying what she thought and how she felt. Tash saw then a richer load in words. Beyond the beauty of their sounds and shapes and patterns was a deeper beauty of the truth they could shape. They could tell what it was to be Tash Gelema Puno. Words could fly the banners and turn the rotors of a life. Malaba squeezed her hand and pushed her broken lips into a smile and creased the corner of her white, frost-burned eyes. The emergency channel chimed. Yoyote had her on visual. They were about twenty kilometres downslope from her. They were coming to get her. They would be safe soon. Well done. And there was other news, news that made his voice sound strange to Tash and Diggler Six, like he was dead and walking and talking and about to cry all at the same time. A command had come in from Iridus Excavation Command, from the High Orbital, ultimately all the way from Earth and the Iridus Development Consortium. There had been a political shift. The faction that was up was down, and the faction that was down was up. The Big Dig was cancelled. From here, every way was up. There had been no official announcement from the Council of Diggers for ceremonials or small mournings. In their ones and twos, their families and kinship groups and sororities and fraternities, the people of West Diggory had decided to share the news that their world was ending and to see the bottom of it, the base that had been there striving for three generations, the machine head, Dig Zero, minimum elevation. So they took digglers or rode down the scoop line to the bottom of the big dig and looked around them and looked around at the digging heads of the scoop lines, stilled and frozen for the first time in memory, buckets filled with their last bite of Mars turned towards the sky. As they grew accustomed to the sights and wonders of the dig head, for not one in fifty of the excavating city's populations worked at the minimum elevation, they saw in the distance, between the black scoop line, groups and families and societies from North Cutter and South Delving and area. They waved to each other, greeting relatives they had not seen in years. The common channel was a flock of voices. Tash stood with her raven sorority sisters. They positioned themselves around her, even Queen Bee later. Tash was a slam and brief heroine, perhaps the last one the big dig would ever have. Inant Malaba had been taken to the main medical facility at area, where they were growing new irises for her frost-blinded eyes. Her face would be scarred and patched with ugly white, but her smile would always be beautiful. So the in-sisters and in-cousins stood around Tash, needing to be down at zero but not knowing why or what to do now. The boys from the Black Obsidian Fraternity waved and came across the sand to join the girls. So few of us, really, Tash thought. Why? out cousin Seben asked. Environment, said Sweto, and in the same transmission, Corey said, Cost. Are they going to take us all back to Earth? Chunya asked. No, they're never going to do that, Haramwe said. He walked with a stick, which made him look like an old man, but at the same time, interesting and attractive. That would cost too much. We couldn't anyway, Sweto said. The gravity down there would kill us. We can't live anywhere but here. This is our home. We're Martians, Tash said. Then she put her hands up to her face mask. What are you doing? Chunya, always the nervous in-cousin, cried in alarm. I just want to know, Tash said. I just want to feel it like it should be. 
Three taps and the faceplate fell into her waiting hands. The air was cold, shakingly cold, and still too thin to breathe, and anyway, to breathe was to die on lungfuls of carbon dioxide. But she could feel the wind, the real wind, the true wind in her face. Tash exhaled gently into the atmosphere gathered at the bottom of the big dig. The world still sloped gently away from her, all the way up the sky. Tears would freeze in an instant, so she kept them to herself. Then Tash clapped the plate back over her face and fastened it to the pea-suit hood with her clever fingers. So what do we do now? Whiny Chunya asked. Tash knelt. She pushed her fingers into the soft regolith. What else was there? What else had there ever been? A message had come down from Mount Incredible, from high orbital, from a world on the other side of the sky, from people who had never seen this, whose horizons were always curved away from them. Who were they to say? What wind blew their words and made them so strong? Here were people, whole cities, an entire civilization in a whole. This was Mars. We do what we know best, Tash said, scooping up pale golden Mars in her gloved hand. We put it all back again. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian MacDonald's. Next up is, or finally is, First Chapters, and it is Mind Secrets by Chris Reynolds. Hello, this is Chris Reynolds. In my novel Mind Secrets, teenagers with special powers fight to exist in a world that doesn't want them. If you turn over to the back cover, this is what it says. On the run, and without his memories, Michael escapes from a man called Carter onto the unfamiliar streets of London. There he meets a gang of teenagers with the power to sense the thoughts and feelings of others. They live in fear of the cure, a mysterious process which takes away their power and, some believe, destroys their personality. Suspecting the cure caused his memory loss, Michael goes undercover to investigate the truth behind the doctors of the cure clinic. What he discovers leads him to a conspiracy that runs to the heart of government and reveals the shocking reality of his own past. Released on the 19th of July, Mind Secrets is available in trade paperback at 7 99 through online retailers such as Amazon and as an e-book at 3 49 or less at Amazon, iTunes, Kobo and others. Here's a little taste. Mind Secrets by Chris Reynolds. Chapter 1. Blood. He didn't know where he was or how he got there. He was just there, in the blur of a bright white tunnel with a smell of floor polish and a strange humming sound above him. He tried to focus on his surroundings, squinting until he felt dizzy, but it didn't get any clearer. Was he dead? He closed his eyes and thought hard, but he couldn't remember dying. Perhaps there was a car accident or a plane crash. Sometimes, when something like that happens, it's so horrible that people's brains forget it on purpose. But he couldn't remember being in a car or a plane, let alone a crash. He couldn't remember anything. The dizziness came over him again. His legs wobbled. He fell backwards and hit something hard and flat. His eyes still closed, he felt behind him with the palms of his hands. The hard, flat thing felt like a wall, reassuringly cold and solid. 
He rested there for a moment, listening to the sound of his own breathing and forcing his fast, shallow breaths to become longer and deeper until the dizziness subsided. He opened his eyes to the brightness and waited for them to adjust to the light. Gradually, he saw that he wasn't standing in a tunnel after all, but in a corridor with a polished tile floor, white painted walls, and ceiling where fluorescent tubes buzzed and lit up the space around him. He wasn't dead. He was in some kind of office building. There was a door beside him with a glass panel at eye level, which enabled him to see into the dark room behind. The light filtering from the corridor was enough to make out the outline of a chair, a desk, and a computer. At the back, a window looked out into the night sky with the twinkling lights of a city below. The office was high up. He estimated the block had to be at least ten stories tall. Michael! A woman's voice called from the distance. Was she calling him? Was that his name? Michael? Something instinctive told him not to answer. All he could assume was he knew her somehow. He tried to relate her to some of the things he had to have in his life parents, home, brothers and sisters, teacher, friends, pets, but he couldn't remember any of those things. Michael! She called again. Michael tensed up. He didn't know why, but he was afraid of the woman. His fingers tightened on something solid in his right hand. He looked down and saw he was holding a knife, a sharp and unused kitchen knife with a 15 centimeter long blade. Perhaps the reason he was afraid of the woman was the same reason he had a knife. Michael! The voice was closer this time. He had a sudden feeling he had to get out of there. At the end of the corridor, a sign pointed towards a fire exit. He headed towards it, turned a corner, and found the fire door. He pushed on the metal bar which ran across the middle, and the door swung open, triggering the piercing wail of a fire alarm. With a quick look behind him, he went through. Michael found himself on a stairwell with flight after flight of concrete steps spiraling below him to infinity. It had to be the way out. He ran down them, step after step, right foot after left foot, until the pounding of his shoes matched the pounding rhythm of his heart. On the fourth flight, Michael turned and stopped. A man stood blocking his way. Going somewhere, Michael, said the man. He was slightly overweight and red faced from having come up the stairs. Middle aged with a full head of dark hair, he wore a black suit with an open neck shirt. He touched a communication device protruding from his ear. This is Carter, he said into it. The kid's on the fire exit stairs between floors five and six. Carter walked three steps towards him. Michael held out the knife, threatening the man with the blade. Put the knife down, Michael. There's nowhere to go. Through the continuing blaring fire alarm, Michael heard the sound of footsteps on the stairs above. He looked up to see the flash of black clothing against grey concrete. There had to be at least four people running down the stairs after him. He couldn't go back that way. He had to get past Carter. Carter was standing closer to the wall than the handrail, leaving a gap wide enough for Michael to sneak through. Without thinking, he made a break for it. Although unfit, Carter's reflexes were sharp and he sidestepped to block Michael's escape route. The gap switched to the other side of him. Michael headed for it. Carter lunged towards Michael and caught his arm. Michael was jerked back, but his knife arm was still free. He swung the blade toward Carter's belly like a sword. Carter sucked in his stomach and the blade whooshed past millimeters from his flab. Michael pulled the knife back for a second attack, but Carter lunged again and this time caught the wrist of Michael's knife arm. He was caught mid swing with the knife facing backwards, pointing at his own chest. Michael stared at the tip of the blade, his heart pounding with fear, knowing that one push from Carter could plunge the point into his ribcage. 
He tried to force Carter away, but the man had him in a deadlock, with one hand gripped around his left arm, the other clutching his right wrist. Drop the knife, Michael. Michael daren't. It was the only thing that gave him superiority over the stronger, heavier man. He tried to force his wrist away, but the more he did so, the harder Carter pushed. Michael staggered backwards until he felt the hard surface of the wall at his back. He was trapped. Give it up, Michael. Michael stared up at the determination in Carter's eyes, then at the blade of the knife, centimetres from his body, wavering as the muscles in his arm weakened. He couldn't hold on for much longer. He had to use Carter's strength against him. Michael stopped resisting, so Carter was suddenly pushing against nothing. The blade lurched forwards. Michael yanked his body sideways, but not enough, and the knife plunged into his arm. He screamed. A sudden sharp pain radiated up to his shoulder and down to his fingertips as his cries echoed the length of the concrete stairwell. Carter, a splatter of blood on his suit, backed off in shock. Michael's right hand was still on the hilt of the knife. It was his only weapon, so he yanked it free. The blade burned his flesh as he drew it back through his arm. He stumbled, suddenly lightheaded, but he held on to consciousness, and he held on to the knife, now dripping with blood, pointing it towards Carter. Carter kept his distance, more wary this time. Distance enough for Michael to take his chance and run down the stairs. Carter dodged to put his unfit body between Michael and freedom. Without thinking, Michael thrust the knife forward. The blade sank into the flab of Carter's belly, as easy as a butcher's knife into meat. Carter clutched at his stomach and staggered back with blood oozing and the blade sticking out of him. His body slammed into the wall. He reached out behind him and left a bloody handprint on the white paintwork. He stared at Michael in disbelief, his mouth open as if frozen in the middle of a scream. His legs buckled, and Michael watched in horror as his body sunk to the floor. The adrenaline of fear and pain pumped through Michael's veins. He turned away from the bloody body and ran down the stairs, step after step, right foot after left foot, holding his arm and hoping he wouldn't bleed to death. <laughs> Secrets is written and read by Chris Reynolds. The novel is available in paperback and as an ebook. Find out more at chrisreynolds-writer.co.uk. Mind Secrets is published by Ellie Books, who also produced this audio recording. There you go. That is Starship Sofa 247, Put to Bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. On the, the week, that was probably one of the most important weeks in Starship Sofa's history, the launch of Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp. Please pop over there, subscribe, and dig some cool stories. And welcome now to the District of Wonders. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.